0: Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective 2020 on Vision
1: As you know, there have been delays in the government announcing its position on religious freedom since late last year when the Prime Minister handballed the issue of religious freedom to a review so he could push through those new laws allowing same-sex marriage. Well, the man charged with the report from an expert panel Philip Ruddock has handed it to the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and his Attorney General Christian Porter. But we don't yet know what the recommendations are. We do know that it's likely to recommend changes to the law that will affect parents, churches, Christian schools and anyone who may stand for biblical truth that conflicts with new laws around things like sexuality, marriage and even other religious minorities. Philip Ruddock is reported as saying that the changes won't be revolutionary and that he believes religious freedom is already well protected in this country. So some informed discussion today about religious freedom issues. Two very special guests to introduce us to. Martin Isles, who's Managing Director of the Australian Christian Lobby and was founder of the Human Rights Law Alliance, which defends Christians who've been dragged before anti-discrimination tribunals. Also, Peter Curty, who is a researcher with the Centre for Independent Studies. His expertise is in religion and values in civil society, law and religious freedom, and ethics. Now, Peter is an ordained minister in the Anglican Church, and both of these gentlemen, a huge contribution to make to our conversation today. A special welcome, uh, first of all, to you, Martin Isles.
2: G'day, Neil. Good to be with you.
1: And uh, to Peter Curdy. Welcome along, Peter.
2: Thanks, Neil. Great
1: to be back with you. Uh, Let's get the conversation rolling today. And I'll start with you, Martin Isles, just some thoughts on Mm. uh, delays for the government announcing its position, because uh, this goes back some time now, of course, to late last year. But uh, are there delays or are these delays significant as to why the government might not yet have brought its position to the fore on religious freedom?
3: Well, there have been delays, fairly big ones, but they are a combination of genuine practical reasons uh, and, on the other hand, political reasons. Uh, uh, the uh, the review was always going to be bigger than the government had anticipated, I think. It was supposed to report back in February. Uh, it just wasn't going to happen um, because so many thousands of submissions were received uh, and there's no way they could have processed it with the resources that they had uh, in the time. So there's a very good practical reason for some of the delays. Others are, are more political. Um, you can imagine um, releasing a report like this around such a controversial issue uh, is not something that the government wants to do when they're trying to sell a budget and and, and tax cuts for businesses and things like that. So uh, it looks like there's been a couple of factors at work, nothing too catastrophic. Uh, It's actually a good thing if uh, the report is released and the government makes recommendations in an environment where there's not too much else to uh, steal the limelight, because then we get to talk about it properly um, and, and get to analyse it properly.
1: Peter Curdy, your thoughts on delays? Is this an advantage or a disadvantage?
2: Well, I think Martin has actually put his finger on it. I think there are uh, there are good reasons why the government hasn't um, ha- hasn't uh, uh, released the, the report and um, made public the, fi- the findings that uh, radical Inquiry has handed over. I do think it's an issue that won't go away though. My, my sense is, and, and Martin will have his finger on the political pulse, I think much more uh, accurately than, than I do, but, but, but there, there is a sense, I think, in which this was um, given to Philip Ruddock as a way of dealing with an issue that was slightly pesky for, uh, for the government and for Malcolm Turnbull in particular. I don't think it can be ignored, and I think it'd be better to uh, to make public the, uh, the inquiry's findings to uh, have a discussion about where, uh, how the findings might be implemented and about any possible law or regulatory change that's made, rather than hoping that it will just sort of go away, because I don't think it will. So it would be better to deal with it sooner rather than later. Although Martin is right, you know, there are some big issues that the government has to deal with at the moment.
1: Uh, Peter, staying with you just a few moments, because as you say, Martin will have his finger on the pulse uh, politically, but uh, you've got some wonderful insights when it comes to why these freedoms matter so much. I mentioned in the introduction you're a minister in the Anglican Church, although these days your primary role, of course, is in this area of research with the Centre for Independent Studies, and you're spending a lot of time thinking through about these issues and why they matter. What are your thoughts for listeners on why they matter so much?
2: I think they matter so much because religious freedom goes to the heart of the kind of society that we live in. We live in a secular liberal democracy. There is no theocracy. People are free to believe or not believe uh, and to follow any religious tradition that they want. And I think it's becoming harder. Many religious people, particularly Christians, but also uh, members of the Jewish faith and to an extent the Islamic faith, are finding it harder publicly to manifest their, um, their religious traditions and their beliefs. And uh, when those sorts of constraints are imposed upon the citizens of a secular democracy like ours, I think it diminishes the overall standard of life in our country. Uh, Martin
1: Niles, let's talk about what sort of expectations we ought to have. And look, there may be rumours that are floating around about what might be contained in those recommendations, but uh, what sort of realistic expect- expectations uh, do you think uh, we ought to be relying on when it comes to this radic review?
3: Well, I think there's probably two ways to answer the question. The first is perhaps what Christians should be uh, asking for from the review. And I think a pretty good minimum standard is for Christians to, or for people, probably more broadly, for people who uh, have, a, have a dissenting view around issues like marriage, gender, sexuality, because of course that's the change that brought on this debate, that law on marriage was changed. Uh, and so now we're having this debate particularly in the light of that. Uh, but for people who have a dissenting view, I think a good minimum standard is to argue for the right uh, to continue to do what they've always done whether or not that is the right to continue to be able to hold the views uh, around those issues that they have or to speak to others about those views uh, or for religious ministers and so forth to proclaim and to preach those views. Um, or to create institutions and organizations like, say, Christian schools or perhaps a university or, or certainly charities, as religious groups are known to do. make many They form many charitable groups for them to be able to have these beliefs enshrined uh, so that they can choose staff on that basis and they can uphold the belief in the way they do their work and so forth. Uh, I think a good minimum ask for us is to say, look, We just like to have the right to continue to do what we've always done. We don't want this change in the law to take away any freedoms that we used to have. Um, It is my view that that's unlikely, or the guarantee of that is unlikely. I think that whatever is suggested, it will be something less than that. So there won't, for example, uh, it's unlikely that there will be a very broad-ranging religious freedom law that comes out of this. Um, more likely there will be some tinkering at the edges so we might see a protection say for example uh, a protection in the Discrimination Code that says that uh, you can't discriminate against somebody because of their religion, and we might see perhaps uh, a protection for charities to say that if you're a charitable institution and you hold uh, beliefs that are that are different on things like marriage and gender and so forth, you're not going to lose your charitable registration. So that helps, um, and you know you, you you can't be ungrateful for that. But it's it's not enough. It's not the same as granting the kind of religious freedom uh, that we want in order to continue to do what we've always done.
1: But it seems to me there are some shackles coming and uh, let me ask you Peter Curti uh, some argue that the law already grants too much power to churches uh, particularly when it comes to hiring and firing on personal grounds uh, so whether it's churches or whether it's uh, Christian schools uh, what are your thoughts on that, that argument that somehow or other the church has got too much freedom that uh, we better try and rein it in.
2: The problem with the way in which many people interpret the exemptions that are afforded religious groups in anti-discrimination laws um, is that it's seen as permission to discriminate or permission to be bigots or permission to indulge in hate speech, which is just nonsense. All that religious groups, uh, whatever tradition, seek to do is to be able to maintain their ethos and their identity. And one of the advantages of the religious freedom law, and I think Martin is right, it's un- we're unlikely to see it, but one advantage of a Commonwealth um, Act would be to in- ensure that would provide for religious bodies being able to maintain their identity and to maintain their ethos. And part of maintaining the ethos and identity is, uh, is by employing staff who are not just sympathetic, but perhaps completely supportive of, of the particular religious tradition um, so, you know, Christian schools need to be able to appoint Christian teachers. Um, Islamic schools need to be able to appoint uh, Muslim teachers. And th- that's, that's a very basic part, I think, of, um, of religious life and practice, maintaining ethos and identity. And that's where a lot of people get very concerned.
1: Uh, Martin Isles, the way they put pressure on the church uh, critics, uh, they say that they uh, are permitting uh, bigotry and hate speech. uh, And uh, some of that is just uh, targeted to the church just because the church stands on uh, what it interprets as truth from the scriptures. Uh, Is that is that true? I mean, this is all about uh, the sorts of words people use to try and win a political debate.
3: Yeah, now there's some truth in, in what you say, in the sense that there's inconsistency that's going on here. So if I could take one example out of what Peter just said so clearly, um, we mentioned the, the, the fact that Christian organizations and various religious groups do want to be able to hire staff for their institutions that share their faith uh, and that will promote their faith actively and, and not, not promote things and messages that are, that are contrary to their faith uh, in, in their daily work, particularly in, say, the schooling environment where a Christian education is the, is the end goal. Um, now, uh, many people will attack that freedom and say that it is bigotry, and you hear those sorts of words often. But if you take an alternative example, uh, you can think of, say, a political party. Uh, the Labour Party, when it goes to hire its staff, is not going to hire you know, a sold-out member of the Australian Conservatives uh, who believes many things that are completely contrary to their policy platform. They're not going to necessarily want that. And that's why there's exemptions in the Discrimination Acts for political parties in many states so that they can actually choose somebody to work for them and discriminate, in inverted commas, on the basis of their political conviction. Uh, and that's not seen as unjust or unfair. That's seen as common sense. Uh, and it's the same, indeed, for religious organisations. And this is where the language gets really fuzzy. Uh, when you throw around words like discrimination and bigotry, it comes down to a question of, well, what do you really mean? And uh, the classical understanding, really, of discrimination... Uh, was that it was only unjust uh, if it wasn't reasonable, and if it wasn't based on objective criteria, uh, and if it wasn't in the pursuit of some legitimate purpose. Uh, And that's in uh, the international uh, human rights law. You can see that in what's called General Comment 18 um, on the discrimination uh, article in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Uh, And so in that situation, you can say, well, all right, it's a religious school. Uh, Is it a reasonable thing for them to require somebody to have a particular religion, to work there. Well, you know, you would argue yes, because you're pursuing a fundamental freedom, a freedom of association, and that is a protected human right at international law. And so what Peter says is really, really significant, which is that by including these freedoms, like freedom of association, as mere exemptions to discrimination laws, you are sending the message that there are certain people in society that are being given a licence to discriminate, and that's not true because the actions that they're taking don't amount to unjust discrimination in the first place they're not they shouldn't be framed as exemptions they should be framed as actual rights
0: life culture and current events from a biblical perspective 2020 on vision
1: just great to have you along with us an important conversation talking about the position that the government is likely to take when it comes to issues to do with freedom of religion. As you know there was a review and those recommendations have been handed to the Prime Minister. There's obviously ongoing discussions that are happening behind closed doors within the government that will soon come out and will announce a position and in fact there are those that say there cannot be winners on every side here. Someone is likely to lose. Uh, Martin Iles uh, the someone likely to lose, given the current environment, some would say would have to be Christians and the church. What are your thoughts about winners and losers?
3: Well, my first thought is that there doesn't have to be winners and losers. Um, if, you, if you properly legislate uh, human rights like freedom of religion and, and non-discrimination and so forth, they're actually balanced in quite a genius way so that there isn't necessarily winners and losers. But there's always going to be moments where rights come into tension, um, I won't even say conflict, because it, it is tension. You can usually resolve the tensions in a, in a rights-respecting manner, uh, as they say, and there's plenty of examples of that. Um, um, but in terms of the way the debate's played out, there is no doubt that the sense is uh, that there are two polarised sides of the debate. And, and I think in some respects that is true, because there are fears on both sides about what the agenda of the other side might be. Uh, and also, if you were, say, somebody in in the gay commu- in the LGBT community, uh, you see examples in your community of discrimination, uh, and you hear uh, rhetoric around the nefarious motives of those who are religious, and words like bigotry and discrimination are bandied around at large, and that does create a genuine concern. And so, when you hear religious freedom, straight away you say, well, that sounds to me like a license bigotry and discrimination against me now that just isn't true Uh, most of the religious freedoms that we're looking for are actually shields to prevent the government from 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 uh, uh taking negative action against us for expressing our faith we don't necessarily want swords to go and charge the other side and do them harm we just want the right to continue to exist as we currently exist with integrity as i'm sure other groups in society do but also on the christian side or the religious. Faith based side of this argument, you have the same kinds of perceptions. And I would say they're not unfounded. Uh, I I started the Human Rights Law Alliance, or was involved with the team that started the Human Rights Law Alliance in May 2016, which is ACL's legal clinic. And the brief for that organization was to help Christians who get in trouble with the law for living out their faith. Many in Australia would say, well, that sounds to me like not really a need in this country. But interestingly, we had roughly just over 40 cases. Um, in, in in the couple of years that that's been running. And those are cases where people, simply for expressing their Christian views, particularly around these hot-button issues, unfortunately it is always, nearly always, around these hot-button issues, not exclusively, but, but overwhelmingly, of sort of marriage, gender, sexuality, and things like that, real issues of controversy in the community, and also issues that religious people tend to be uh, believing something different to the way the culture's going at large. And you have people who have been suspended from their workplaces, School teachers who have been stood down under disciplinary investigations, people who have lost their professional licences with different bodies, either as counsellors or medical professionals, or with universities, their affiliated status with different universities. University students who have been suspended and subjected to academic discipline, people in private companies who have actually been fired from their jobs. Uh, in a couple of cases, you know, six-figure roles, fairly significant ones, and even people who have been denied the right to become foster parents because of Christian convictions around these areas. And and we only take cases on where people have been reasonable. If people have really done the wrong thing and been unkind and have actually been bigoted in some way, uh, that's not a case that the Human Rights Law Alliance would pursue. It's only those where they've been challenged about their beliefs and they've said them and they've suffered adverse action and things like that. Now, Word travels fast into the Christian community as it does in other communities, and many people are aware of some of these issues, and they're aware of what seems like hostility on the other side of the fence. And I would say there are, there are some on both sides who are a little hostile, but I think the great mass in the middle isn't. Uh, but the great mass in the middle is swayed by the rhetoric of there's, there's, there's a polarised divide here and we're at war with each other. That's not necessarily true, and we don't seek that. We seek proper human rights and religious freedom protections that actually balance rights well, that give everybody a fair go, because it is a, as Peter has said earlier, it's, it's a secular, pluralistic democracy with many people groups trying to live together, and the intention is to give each of those groups the freedom uh, to live out their own lives according to their belief of what is right and good.
1: And I know that there'll be many listeners who'll be shocked to hear that there have already been 40 cases uh before uh the uh the group that you uh, helped found there martin isles uh because the uh, the uh, the group uh Uh, which is the Human Rights Law Alliance as you say, uh, 40 cases Uh, let me come to you uh, Peter Curdy, because when there are 40 cases like that uh, typically those people no doubt are appearing before anti-discrimination tribunals and different states have their own anti-discrimination laws so even if the government does come up with some sort of idea and comes up with a bright shiny statement says we've solved the problem here it all is fixed up uh, then there's still all of these issues with the states and those who want to drag Christian believers before the courts are still going to be able to do that, even if the government comes out with some sort of uh, overall overarching uh, problem solution. What are your thoughts, Peter?
2: Well, I think one of the strengths of a Commonwealth Religious Freedom Act is that it would prevail over state law and would bring those uh, different jurisdictions into line so that, in fact, it would not be, opportun- it would not be uh, possible for uh, individual states' anti-discrimination commissions to, to uh, adhere to particular lines that deviated from a, a federal act that, that, that enshrined religious freedom. But I think coming back to an earlier point that you made, Neil, and Martin, you picked up, I think it's terribly important that we push back against the language of winners and losers, because it, it, it turns religious freedom into a zero-sum game. I win, you lose. Uh, and and we're, losing, we're in danger of losing sight of the, the notion of tolerance. These days, we talk about tolerance as if it involves you know, agreeing with somebody or respecting someone's point of view. But actually, looking back in history, uh, tolerance was anything but that. You tolerate that which you don't like, you don't disagree with, you, you don't agree with, and you tolerate people you don't even respect. But the business of getting on with them is what the business of toleration is. And I think we need to re- rekindle that that more authentic sense of what tolerance amounts to. It It doesn't mean that we'll all agree. It doesn't mean that we will all respect one another's points of view uh, or or, or like them. But it does mean we will agree to live with them and, uh, in that sense, respect the right of another person to hold a point of view that we don't agree with. So I think winners and losers does, as Martin said, it it makes it into a very uh, bipolar Uh, discussion that there are winners on one side and losers on the other. And that, of course, makes people on both sides... (laughs) dig in and I would like us to dig out of those situations that we, t- we tend to get ourselves into. Uh,
1: there are some who would like to see the church disciplined in some way. Uh, coming to you Martin Isles, uh, when we talk about winners and losers, those who want to win on one side and uh, uh, win on the other and so this idea of a battle uh, eventuates and then there are ordinary Aussies who say I'm not really on one side or the other. I mean i you know, I'm just letting them have their fight I've got nothing to lose in all of this in actual fact uh, ordinary Australians have so much to lose if there is no longer freedom of political communication or freedom of academic uh, communication to be able to write and research on the topics that you believe are important for the future of the nation everyone's the loser if this is not resolved properly
3: oh that is so true Neil um the 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 difficulty we have is 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 in creating that sense that uh, freedom is something that needs to be fought for constantly and needs to be jealously guarded when it's under threat. Uh, And I think many people hear language like religious freedom and straight away they go, well, I'm not religious. Um, So uh, that's not me. You know, that's the church's business. And, you know, maybe they don't like the church anyway. Uh, And so it falls by the wayside in their minds. Now, I, I think that's terribly... Uh, misguided, and I think that is the case because I think religious freedom is at the heart of all freedom, and I say that because if you protect somebody's belief uh, and their convictions uh, you are actually protecting the thing that fuels their other freedoms, so you, you, you protect the thing that fuels their free speech, because they're not going to talk unless they talk about what they believe uh, and they're not going to associate, create institutions and have clubs and societies and groups that they join, unless they're gathering around shared interests, shared beliefs Um, and they're not going to have freedom of expression other than to live out the doctrines, teachings, tenets of whatever it is that they believe, whether uh, overtly, uh, institutionally religious or not. So freedom of religion and belief actually lies at the very heart of freedom itself. And if you undermine that, then you undermine the thing from which people speak, the thing from which people associate, and the thing from which people uh, express themselves. Uh, And if you have a society where there isn't that freedom, then you have a society that is somewhere on the spectrum of tyranny, whether it's mild or major. Um, And, uh, you know, many of the justifications for undermining these freedoms come from uh, people saying, well, um, if you allow that freedom, somebody might be a bigot. And so there's this utopian impulse. They say we can make a more perfect world by limiting that freedom and stopping people from maybe being a bigot, uh, or we can stop them from saying things that might upset or offend somebody. And so everybody's very concerned about the cost of freedom And they go to limit freedom bit by bit because they think it's costly. But where they're moving is up the spectrum of tyranny. And nobody talks about the cost of tyranny, which is far worse. Uh, And so nobody's pretending that there's a utopia here. Yes, if you grant freedoms, there's going to be side effects. But it is a far more, I mean, it's the great legacy of Australia, the United Kingdom, the United States, of Western nations. It's the great legacy of them that we protect the freedom of people to live out what it is that they believe to be right and good, and the state says that's okay. We're not the be-all and end-all. We're going to allow you uh, to live your life in freedom, and we're going to allow you to create your own groups with your own belief systems, and our limitations are going to be uh, at a certain level that is not, does not amount to tyranny. So it's very, very important to preserve that because it preserves, it preserves the very nature of our society. When we
1: come back after news, let's talk uh, politics uh, for a short while because there must be a, a, a terrific internal conflict that's going on within the coalition right now. I'll be interested in your impressions. And the polarising aspects of this where you might have the Labor Party pursuing a militant secular agenda and, and you might have the coalition government trying to uh, please everyone with a good outcome. Uh, Let me come back to what I mentioned just before the news, Martin and Peter. The idea that there's all sorts of conflict that must be going on right now behind closed doors... In the coalition, where there'll be all sorts of conflict about uh, the position that would be taken on religious freedom because there's uh, conservatives and then those are more uh, centrist who would be in some way uh, in conflict. And also this idea of a more militant and secularised Labour Party that does seem to want to put the boot into the church. Let me come to you first, uh, Martin Isles, uh, the idea that conflict is going on on both sides of, uh, of government right now.
3: Yeah, look, that is true, Neil. Um, it's interesting. The, the the coalition is not unsympathetic to um, religious freedom, if I could put it that way. Uh, if you recall, uh, and the listeners might recall, when the when the same-sex marriage uh, changes were passed through the parliament, a whole range of amendments to the same-sex marriage act were proposed on the floor of the parliament, and those amendments very, very broadly covered a lot of religious freedom issues that that stem particularly from the same-sex marriage issue and cover what was called in those amendments related beliefs. So that included beliefs about human sexuality, beliefs about gender and what it's for and that kind of thing. Uh, And the truth of the matter is that those amendments would have solved a large part of the religious freedom problem we have in Australia. And I say that just because um, of the practical experience that I've had um, with the legal work with the Human Rights Law Alliance just tells me very clearly that that is the if you like the lightning rod issue that's the issue around which so many of these complaints come up because it is those are the controversial issues of controversial debate in the community right now but most of the coalition a huge i think it was a majority of the party room supported those amendments uh, even though they ultimately didn't get through the parliament because of the political uh, uh, gymnastics that were going on and so there is broad support from within the government for, uh, you know, reasonable religious freedoms. Uh, it depends whether or not the Ruddock Review will provide them with the, uh, the force that's necessary to uh, take on uh, a, a bigger reform agenda. See, the Ruddock Review might come out with something that's quite, uh, quite a lot weaker than those amendments, in which case the, the, the government might not even be discussing sufficient religious freedom protections. But you say, Neil, on the other side, there's issues in the Labor Party I don't think that those in the Labor Party uh, would, would understand the problem that they have uh, as being one that is anti-religious freedom. Uh, I think nearly all of them would say they believe uh, in religious freedom. They just have a narrower scope of what that freedom means. It's more about the freedom for people to believe something and perhaps to, uh, to express that belief within the four walls uh, of a church building or whatever, but not necessarily to go out into society, say, with a belief about marriage. Uh, let's say they're running a campsite, uh, and there's a booking made at the campsite for a group that's going to be promoting beliefs that contradict with that belief about marriage. Whether or not you can take your belief into the public square like that, or the commercial arena, they would say uh, they have a different opinion about that. And most of the issues coming through the Labour Party come uh, in relation to their policies around other matters particularly around LGBTIQ policy um, at their national conference. There'll be a whole lot of amendments put up to their policy platform. And those policies will be very draconian um, um, enforcements of you know, LGBT tolerance and things like that, just sort of the buzzwords that they'll use to name them. And unfortunately, those would have a deleterious or a negative effect on religious freedom Uh, but but it it comes through those secondary means if you like there's not anybody in the labor party saying i don't believe in religious freedom uh, that i'm aware of but uh, it is an understanding of religious freedom that's much smaller and a support for other policies which perhaps they don't realize uh infringe upon religious freedom and i would say too that's a generalisation. There are plenty of people in the Labour Party who believe in religious freedom and there are some in the coalition who, who have a smaller belief as well. So those are just generalisations. Uh,
1: yes, there's a difference, isn't there, between freedom of worship, what happens in the four walls of the church, and real religious freedom, which means uh, that political and academic freedom that happens in the broader uh, community. Uh, your thoughts on some of the conflicts that must be going on right now, Peter Curdy uh, what have you observed uh, when you've been looking at uh, the uh, the Liberal National Coalition and uh, also the, the differences that might be happening in the Labour Party?
2: Well, I think it's a very important point that you make about um, uh, about freedom, the, what religious freedom amounts to, because you're right, Neil, it's not just freedom to worship. It's Religious freedom is the freedom to organise your life, your family, your community around your belief. Taking the Labour Party first, I think they, they're in an interesting situation. I think Martin's absolutely right. It's not... It's, it's, not that they are, um, uh, it's not that they are opposed to religious freedom, but that they are being pushed to certain uh, positions because of their position on LGBTQI issues. They've got to worry about shoring up the, the extreme left wing of the Labour Party that's, that's very attracted to Green policies. Well, we know that the Australian Greens are very opposed to um, any manifestation of religious belief in, in, in Australian life, But at the same time, there is the progressive wing of the Labour Party, well, most of the Labour Party is, of course, progressive, that wants to affirm certain LGBTQI policies. But they've got some very conservative constituencies. We know that when the uh, the postal uh, ballot was held at the end of last year, some of the most conservative seats turned out to be Labour-held seats in Western Sydney, for example, Mm -hmm. where I live. And I think that the Labour Party is going to have to juggle a number of uh, quite difficult um Policy positions in order to keep everybody, as it were, uh, I- I- in the same fold. When it comes to the Liberal National Coalition, well, I think it, it, there's a, we, we, we know that there are people who are, who take a very conservative and traditional view of social arrangements, including marriage, and that there are more progressive elements within the Labour Party that, like Malcolm Turnbull himself, who are in favour of things like same sex marriage. So I think there is the, the Labour Party, the Liberal Party, rather continues to be a broad church, and I think it requires great political skill on the part of the Prime Minister and the senior leaders of the party to keep to keep that together. Nobody wants to be, as it were, against religious freedom, but is religious freedom going to be eclipsed by other issues that, that can be even more pressing, such as the rights of, of, of same-sex couples, for example?
1: Uh, We are not taking calls this hour, but on Facebook, uh, you can make a comment or you can leave a question. Uh, a, A feedback from Joe, who says Christian schools are supposed to be about educating from a Christian worldview. How can a secularized teacher do that? And why would they want to? Short answer, they couldn't and wouldn't. That's like putting an atheist ahead of the Australian Christian Church's state executive. And again, no to my children being taught dodgy sexual theology and being told to keep it a secret. Uh, If you can pick up uh, any of those points there, Martin Iles, uh, when you get that sort of Facebook, uh, that's a listener to this program who certainly doesn't want anything to do with, uh, you know, inhibiting the way that uh, Christian schools uh, or churches might uh, teach the theology of the church.
3: Well, that's, I think the, the, much of what he said there is, is bang on the money in the sense that uh, this, is, <clears throat> this is actually not that radical of a thing if people think it through, that Christian schools would be able to employ staff that share their ethos and would be able to have codified beliefs in their policies and so forth that say they believe certain things and uphold those because that is the substance of a Christian education. Uh, if they are forced to give up on any of those things, then increasingly the education is no longer Christian. If they have to employ somebody who does, who, who openly uh, 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 lives contrary to the tenets and beliefs of the Christian school, uh, then all of a sudden the education being provided from that person is, is, is much less Christian, possibly not Christian at all. And so they completely lose their ethos, uh, that runs throughout the community, whether it's in religious institutions or any other institution, including political parties and things like that. Uh, so uh, the Facebook message is, is exactly right. I suppose where the issue comes from is that um, there are many in society who just, uh, particularly policy makers who look out at those freedoms. And they see groups like religious groups who have the freedom to live and to uh, organize their lives and their families and all this kind of thing around their fundamental beliefs. Uh, But they say, but you know what, those beliefs are so intolerably harmful, in my opinion, that they should not be allowed. And it's that impulse that makes them say, you know, that Christian school, I think, in my opinion, and not really me, but this is a hypothetical person, saying, I think, in my opinion, that that religious school is actually uh, causing tremendous harm to those children by teaching Christian beliefs. So I think the law should stop them from having that freedom. It is that kind of um, nanny state or totalitarian impulse uh, that is in many people, whether they identify it or not, which causes so many arguments against freedom. But of course, if the shoe was on the other foot and somebody else was trying to attack their freedom, then they would think very differently about it.
1: Okay, uh, let's just manoeuvre to a a different and deeper perspective when it comes to this issue of religion, because when we talk religion, we're not just talking about Christianity. A comment from Grace on our Facebook page who says, Can I ask if the ideology of Islam... And I'm not sure what she's saying, ban as a religion and become an ideology because it is against what democracy stands for. Now, I'm not sure you can make sense of that, but uh, Peter Curdy, the idea that uh, Islam's also a religion and they're a part of the religious review that's going on. And uh, people would recognize that Islam is an ideology and there are some downsides to that and uh, is opposed to democracy the way that we know it. Uh, what are your thoughts for uh, the broader uh, religious uh, freedom issues here when it comes to other religious minorities?
2: Mm, I think it's an interesting question. I think Islam actually presents a particular set of questions and issues for, um, for Western-style democracies, because Islam is not just a religion. It's a political system. It's a legal system with its own financial principles, uh, and there is, of course, a religious component to what extent can a Muslim living in a Western democratic society accommodate their belief to the prevailing values and norms of a uh, of that society is, a, is an important question. And I think that's one of the issues that we have to continue to work with in Australia. It's one of the reasons why I think religious freedom is such an important issue for this country. It's the other, as it were, presenting issue, the other, the, the other one, of course, being same-sex marriage. Um, I, I think what we need to work towards is ensuring that Australian Muslims are able to practice their faith, organize their, their schools, their communities, their families, uh, in accordance with their beliefs, as long as they don't contravene the law. And I, I say that specifically because religious freedom is not an absolute right. So you can't say, well, my religion tolerates, uh, and not just tolerates, but promotes um, Child marriage, for example, or female genital mutilation, those are against the law in this country and they must remain against the law. And You can't claim religious freedom in order to trump those laws. But as long as the law of the land is not, is not breached, I think people should be free uh, to live their life. It's one of the reasons I'm not, I'm very much opposed to a burqa ban. Denmark has just imposed a so-called burqa ban. I don't think that's the way for us to go and I don't think that's an Australian response. Um, But but Muslim leaders, as much as as leaders of the community, need to ensure that Australian Muslims are able to live their lives and take their places in Australian society alongside every other citizen. But it's a work that has to be pursued, I think, with, with diligence and some determination.
0: Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events.
1: We have been talking about what to expect with the recommendations that have come from the Ruddock review into religious freedom. They've been handed to the Prime Minister and for a couple of weeks now there's been discussion going on behind closed doors and the government will be preparing now as to how they're going to present their response to issues to do with religious freedom. Uh, two guests, uh, Peter Curty is with us from the Centre for Independent Studies and Martin Isles from the Australian Christian Lobby, just a few minutes remaining in our conversation. Uh, let me ask you, Peter Curty, uh, as we tie some loose ends together here, is there anything that you can identify that might give us some level of hope and expectation of what might happen uh, no matter what the government comes up with?
2: Well, I think, Neil, that there is a very strong prevailing sense of live and let live in Australia, and we saw it well exemplified in the uh, the case of Israel Folau, when uh, uh, this talented footballer posted uh, uh, an opinion, his own opinion, uh, a theological point of view about, about gay people in answer to a question that he was posed. Now, a lot of people didn't like it, and the media and Rugby Australia and Qantas all started pronouncing about Israel Folau, but the widespread view amongst members of the public was that those who didn't agree with him thought well you know that's fair enough I don't agree with that point of view and I think it's wrong but he's he's entitled to his opinion he's entitled to his belief and that I think is a strain of Australian life that we need to honour uh, we need to promote and we need to talk up and not talk down I think Australians are tolerant people um, and I think Religious freedom is seen as being part of that very tolerance that makes our country the great country that it is.
1: And Martin Niles, your thoughts on issues like Israel for Lao and perhaps a prevailing idea of uh, live and let live, let's get on with it, let's all be
0: free.
3: Look, I think Peter's exactly right. I think Australia is, is uh, stands uh, head and shoulders above some other nations in our desire. Uh, to let people live and let live, uh, and to be uh, relaxed about these things, um, that's a great thing. Um, and I think the challenge, probably that goes out off of the back of that, is if, if, if there's somebody, if there's people listening who are of that live and let live mindset and who believe in religious freedom and freedom of speech and all of those things, the challenge is uh, continue to speak up for it, um, because the only way that they get completely eroded is when people stop speaking up, when there's voices in society go silent. Um, and then there's no other. People feel alone. They don't hear other people talking about it. They get slowly isolated, and and those freedoms get shut down. So uh, I would say that there is that prevailing sense. It's just our job now to make sure that that sense continues. And if you don't know where to start, just find an organisation that believes what you believe, that you think stands for you. The ACLs of the world, and there's many others, which are huge organisations that have a lot of supporters and a lot of voices. And if you become part of the process you can help preserve that live and let live mentality. So we've got a great cultural advantage and there's also plenty of groups out there doing a great job at keeping that advantage alive.
1: And of course, a lot of people will say, I don't know how to speak up. I don't know what to say. And what you're saying, Martin Isles, is that there are some resources. And uh, to mention the Australian Christian Lobby, acl.org.au. And Peter Curty on the Centre for Independent Studies, uh, lots of good research that's coming out articles that people can read uh, expressions about what's happening with uh, changes in religious freedom in the nation right now cis.org.au before we wrap up our conversation uh, there's likely to be some sort of process perhaps before the government comes out and makes a major announcement Uh, is there any likelihood martin isles that there might be uh, some inside information before there's some sort of public delivery of the government's position
3: yeah, look, there will be. So the government is is showing the report or, or giving a, a briefing on the report to selected groups um, before it is publicly released. So that includes the Coalition for Marriage, of which ACL is a part. That was the No campaign during the uh, during the, uh, the, the, the postal plebiscite. Um, and also the Yes campaign will get a briefing as well. And so there will be an early reveal, if you could put it that way, of, of the substance of that report. So there will be some early inside information uh, and, and people will be able to prepare their responses in advance. So the government's being very transparent, very open. That's a great sign. And
1: Peter Curti, I suspect the government will have their PR machine working uh, on overdrive uh, to make this look like it's all good and all rosy and the future is bright, uh, ought we be looking for the devil in the detail when it comes to what sort of recommendations or what sort of position the government takes?
2: Well, I don't know about devils and details, but I think we need to be reading out, reading what comes out very carefully and studying it. And um, <clears throat> I think groups like ACL, will, who will have the, the chance to maybe have a foretaste, um, the response that groups like ACL and the Martin's leadership makes will be an important guide. Um, I've not been able to get any information so far. I've put out some tentative feelers without much success. Um, but I will be interested to see exactly what it is that, that is recommended and what it is that the government is prepared to adopt.
1: And no doubt that the the landscape for the rest of 2018 may actually be quite significantly dominated by a lot of issues that might arise, and even perhaps, uh, Martin Isles, uh, the idea there might be a a whole lot of new cases that might be needing to be defended, depending on the way that the government's uh, position comes here. Uh, What are your thoughts for the rest of 2018?
3: Well, I think the issue is not going away, Neil. And I think this is one of the things that worries the government a little bit. They know that it's not going to be easy to solve. It's one of those slightly messy ones. Um, and uh, certainly when the Ruddock review comes out, we have had some murmurings and sources uh, close to the issue, you know, giving us some information. Uh, we're not optimistic that it's going to be quite enough. And so for the rest of the year, I have no, I have little doubt that ACL will be campaigning uh, to get the government to commit to something perhaps a little better. Uh, or to fulfil the recommendations of the Ruddock Review in the best possible way. Uh, there is an important issue with detail here. We've got to get the details right. Uh, the government will say it's all rosy and it's all wonderful and they'll sound like they're giving us the world, but I'd ask people just to be cautious and uh, reflect soberly on it and read the input of groups like ACL and others to get a clear picture. And there will be a campaign in the rest of the year. And any more cases that come up, uh, like the ones I've already described, We will be making them public so that people can see that religious freedom concerns are real and not hypothetical.
1: And of course, we'd hope to bring some more conversations like this as those details begin to emerge. Uh, Our two guests today: uh, Martin Isles, managing director of the Australian Christian Lobby, and Peter Curty with the Centre for Independent Studies. Uh, To both of you, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with our listeners. And I look forward to another opportunity in the near future when we can get together and unpack some of these. When we perhaps know a little more. Uh, Martin and Peter, thanks for being with us on 2020.
0: Thank you, Neil. It was a pleasure, and thanks, Martin. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported.